Welcome to the Grow Strong Leaders podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Bell, and I interview business leaders who are committed to their own growth and the development of everyone on their team. If you enjoy my podcast, be sure to subscribe and rate it on your favorite podcast platform. I'm Meredith Bell, your host, and my podcast is brought to you by my company. You can learn more about us at growstrongleaders.com, where you'll see that we are the publisher of books and software tools that help people communicate better in the workplace. Today, I'm really excited to have as my guest, Tyler Wagner. Tyler, welcome to my show. Thank you so much. Grateful to be here. Well, I'm, I've been looking forward to this ever since you and I first met. We were introduced by David Wood, if you remember, who was a guest on your show, and he thought we would have a lot in common because of our interest in connecting people and being of service to others, and he was so right. I enjoyed our first conversation so much. I knew I wanted you to be on my show. There's so much wisdom you've acquired over the years. Before we get into our conversation, let me tell Uh, my listeners a little bit about you. Tyler is, and I love this title, the head honcho. Is that what you still like to be called? I do. I like it. (laughs) Head honcho. I love that. It's attention getting at Authors Unite, where he and his team help authors with all aspects of book writing, publishing, and promotion. And that includes getting listed on bestseller lists of publications like the Wall Street Journal and USA Today. He's also the host of the Tyler Wagner Show, where I've been a guest, and he has almost 2,000 episodes under his belt. That's an amazing feat, Tyler. Congratulations. And what's interesting is Tyler has not taken the traditional route in any of his ventures, as we're going to be discovering here in our conversation. So Tyler, I would like you to start um, telling us about your journey as an entrepreneur, maybe at the point of college, because you took an unusual turn with that experience. Yeah, for sure. So that that is really where it starts. So I was, I was 18, 19 in my first year of college. And then this opportunity, like um, it was like on a desk in uh, one of our classes, that was basically an opportunity to start your own painting business. And I had always wanted to like start my own business, not necessarily painting, but like I was like, oh, this is an opportunity to learn how to manage people and and just anything about running a business. So I took the opportunity, and what it included was door to door sales, basically. So essentially what it was is this company had a partnership with Sherwin-Williams and they would train uh, college kids how to paint houses. And then I I would be the uh, founder or franchisee owner of that specific area. Um, So what occurred is uh, all spring before the summertime, when you would actually do the painting, I would go door to door and I hired four people to help me with that. And just knock on a door and basically point out to people like places on their house that I had noticed while walking up. And this is how we were taught, basically. Um, So I'd be like, your fascia, you know, if you don't fix that paint up there, you could get wood rot, you know, things like that. And uh, which is all true. Um, 
And then basically they would either, I had multiple scenarios, right? Sometimes they'd say, yes, come back, give us an estimate. Uh, sometimes they'd slam the door in my face. And this is South Carolina as well. And I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly, this, luckily this didn't really happen to me, but you can, if you trespass on property, like they do have the right, you know, with a gun or something. It's a little scary to do down in South Carolina. I'll just say that. Um, So uh, from, I can't tell you how many doors I knocked on. It was, it had to be definitely over 10,000, like a lot of doors. Um, And it just taught me that like, you have to accept no um, because our business actually did very well. Like over the years, I did it for two years. We did over a million dollars in business um, throughout painting all these different houses. But to get there, if I really think about it, probably like uh, with me and my team, tens of thousands of doors knocked on and only like hundreds of clients, right? So like, if you look at the success rate, it's pretty low, but painting someone's entire outside of their house, exterior of their house, you know, some of our um, payments would be anywhere from thousands to tens of thousands of dollars, right? So it was just kind of like a, it was a big lesson for me that just like success is in some cases is a numbers game. And you have to be willing to have many people say no to you before the yeses come. So regardless, getting into how I started with Authors Unite is that occurred, had a good experience, and then I read this book called The Four Hour Work Week. And that's in my middle of my second year in college. And I read that book and completely changed my life. I was like, okay, I don't need to be with a franchise. I can actually do my own thing entirely. And I don't need school either. And actually, it made me realize that what school was going to get me, I didn't even want. Right. So it was like a corporate job or something. Like I didn't even want that. So I was like, why am I paying tuition? I do not know. <laughs> so, either way, call my counselor at the college and I'm like, I'm going to drop out. Like there, there's some stuff in the middle there, but essentially I asked her some questions about their entrepreneur major. Wasn't really fond of it. So I just basically was like, okay, I'm going to drop out. But before I do, I'm going to travel abroad and have a great six months <laughs> because I already knew I was going to drop out. So I failed all my classes and just partied in Europe for six months. Um, so that was fun. But then drop out, write a book. And I'm happy to go in more detail in any areas you see. But essentially, drop out, wrote a book because I wanted to be a public speaker. And I kind of put together from going to all these conferences that most public speakers were authors or best-selling authors. And so I wrote the book for that reason. It worked pretty well, got like a dozen paid speaking gigs, anywhere from $1,000 to $3,000, which for me at the time being like 20 years old was huge. Um, But what took off way quicker was people kept asking me how I wrote, published, and marketed my book. And 10 years later, over 2,000 clients now with Authors Unite. So that's the story of how it all happened. That's great. I love the twists and turns there. So let's go back to these no's that you got, because I know from talking to many of my listeners, who many of whom are business owners, consultants, coaches, or even someone within a corporate environment, this hesitation to ask when we're afraid we might get no as an answer. What are some some ideas that you could share or tips 
that might help them adopt a different perspective around hearing the word no, because you certainly developed, I would guess, a thick skin so that it didn't bother you. What Talk about that process a little bit. Okay. Yeah. So this will get a little deep, but I, this is how my mind works with it. So it actually goes back to the four hour work week, which I, I ended up reading after, but it just gave me the realization is that in four hour work week, one of the practices that he talks about is with any big decisions that you feel are risky or you're like scared of, um, which could be, you know, talking to your boss or just asking for a sale. Um, you want to think what's the worst that could happen. And a lot of times our brains over overthink that. Like, and for me, that's how I was able to drop out of college because I, before understanding that concept, I thought it was the biggest decision of my life. And like, if I made it and then I failed, all my friends and family would think I was a failure and I could never go back to school because I'd be older than everyone in my class. Like all these things that like don't really matter right? Like that was what was preventing me from dropping out of school even earlier. Like it was deep down in me knowing I shouldn't be there, but I wouldn't allow myself, maybe you call it ego. Like that's maybe what it was. So either way now, um, it's just like, I, I think of that question, what's the worst that can happen? And really it's like them saying no, um, is really not that bad. You know, like it's, but we think it's like way worse. It's, it's nothing. So, um, and then the other thing, and this is just where it gets a little deeper for me is like, I just think, you know, we're all definitely going to die someday. And if you know that, which we all do, um, then these things of like someone saying no to you become so tiny in the grand scheme of things. So that's just how I think about things now. And I'm almost like not afraid of almost anything anymore because I know there is an end to this. So you might as well live the best way you can, you know? So that's how I think. Yeah. Um, okay. You know, what you're saying is so true, putting it into perspective and really what you're looking for is someone who's going to be the best possible match for you with your, your product. So if they tell you no, I'm curious if you ever go back, when you hear no, do you take that as a permanent no, or as a maybe, or not yet, or possibly that, sometime? That is a great question. Okay. So this leads, um, and, and I'll just briefly mention it. I'm actually creating this new thing called find a mentor. Um, basically where, uh, people can get free men, uh, free mentorship from people. It's a real like passion of mine. And it goes to answer your question. Cause the way that I, and this is why I think we get along so well, I always just lead with adding value to people. So when someone tells me no, and actually I think typically on like sales calls, I will say this before they even say yes or no. I always say, or most of the time I say, um, whether we decide to work together or not, I just want to provide as much value as I can to you within the time we have on the call. And then in the email, if they even if they say no, I will still follow up with a bunch of resources that can help them. And that's because the way I think about it, like I don't really charge for consulting. We, we have courses and then we have like high-end done-for-you services. So that middle ground of like consulting or providing free coaching, however you want to look at it, 
I, I'm okay with that. Like if the person doesn't want to buy our course or doesn't want us to do it for them, I want to give you as much content or help as I can for you to try to do it yourself. If you succeed, great. If not, could be six months down the road, but they, I've had people come back and say, Hey, I tried. I realized this is way more work than I thought. I'm just going to hire your team. So things, if they're, if you're meant to work together with someone, it will occur eventually, you know? I love that uh, perspective. And especially what you just said, if you're meant to work with someone, it'll work out because they, what, to me, what you're doing there is making deposits in the relationship when you look for ways to be of value. And I'm curious, how did you acquire that skill? Because doing it myself, I know it is a skill when you practice it over time. But what, what was the aha moment or, or maybe the culmination of things that caused you to say, this is an important way to approach relationships? So what's coming up for me, I don't know if this is it, but I, it could be like, so first I think I, I had very good parents. Like my mom always taught me and my dad too, but my mom was stay at home mom. So I would say it was more, I guess, raised by her is like, no matter what you be nice to everyone. And like, you essentially want to leave people a little better off than they were before they encountered you. So I was always that guy Ella, or well, kid at the time, not a guy uh, in elementary, middle school, and high school, that I was friends with everyone. Um, didn't matter if you were like popular, or unpopular. Like I was nice to everyone and wanted to be friends with everyone in every clique, if you will. If you remember, you know, you remember how that stuff was. So thinking back, I feel like uh, elementary, middle school, and high school, they're kind of like small little economies like micro economies in relation to the world once you get out. So I think I adopted it naturally just because I saw how my childhood worked out and I had a very good childhood. Like I, a lot of people, when they think of their childhood, you hear a lot of just like things didn't go well all the time. Like mine actually was really good. And I think that's not common. And if I think back as to why that was, it was because I was friendly with everyone. So I didn't really have enemies. Hmm. Um, and yeah, so I think that translated over into business. It was like, okay, you don't want to work with me or you can't work with me or whatever it is. That's fine. Let me add as much value to you as possible. And just to help you, maybe you have friends that would work with me. Like there's a lot of reasons why you would want to add value to someone, even if they're not your client. Mm -hmm. So I think that that might be it. That's interesting. Well, that's another thing that you and I share because I had a great childhood too. I had wonderful parents and the older I've gotten, the more I've realized how fortunate and rare that was. I didn't have the kind of issues that I hear about with so many other people. So mm -hmm. yes, we were both very fortunate that way. So when you think about then how this carries over to being a connector, because you obviously are great at building relationships so how did you bridge, you know, I'm friends with everybody to let me connect you and, and thinking in that way? Because I think some folks struggle with how do you do that? So you come across genuinely and you really are effective in putting two people together. Yeah. So I think what it was, I remember having a conversation with my dad when I was like first in college and I basically was telling him how like, you know, I was broke. I was in debt. 
uh, then. So I'm like 18, 19 and telling him like, look, what I'm finding is I'm friends with everyone. I'm connecting all these people together. They're creating business relationships and making money and I'm still broke. Right. So it was like this kind of equation that I was trying to understand with him. I'm like, I know I have this superpower of connecting people. And really, I think that superpower kind of comes from the fact that I like actually enjoy it. Like I'm not the type to be alone in a room. My dad does accounting. So we're like opposite in that way. I could never, like, I just, uh, that sounds terrible. I can't think of something else that would be maybe worse than that. <laughs> like, I, I just don't want to do that. But talking to like, do or doing almost 2000 interviews, I don't plan on stopping anytime soon. Like I, I still have fire in me of, of enjoyment of that. So either way we were talking and he's just like, well, you know, one way could be like, you know, if you connect two people, um, you would take a small percentage of whatever deal, like a commission or something. So once I heard that, and then, you know, year or so goes by and I start Authors Unite, it's actually how I grew my publishing business. So what we did, and I think this will be really valuable for your listeners and how I view business as a whole, not paid advertising, um, not going direct to the um, consumer, which would be like an author for us or aspiring author, but actually connecting and building business relationships with people that also work with authors. So like I have a full sales team and I used to do it all myself. I have literally personally spoken to thousands of publishers, editors, ghostwriters, and PR agencies, because those are the four types of people that work with big groups of authors and they can refer to me. I can refer to them. And what that has like equated to now, um, now that I've been running it 10 plus years is like this just crazy network of those types of individuals. And I've started other businesses with some of them. Um, they refer to me, I refer to them. And there's just like this, I don't know how to describe it. Like, I don't know how else better to run a business because I wake up every day to referrals. And also I just have like, if somebody comes to me and they're like, Hey, how do I become a successful author? Whether it's with me or not, I have a resource because I've spent the time to understand the whole industry. And I, I think I might know more people than anyone in the whole industry because of that reason, you know? So hopefully that answers your question, but it's just like, that's how I view building a business or growing as a person. You can learn something from everyone. So I just, I'm always like, how many people can I have a deep relationship with? Because it opens doors that you didn't even know existed um, in both directions for mm -hmm. them and for me. So, yeah. You know, I, everything you said is so right on. It just resonates as truth. And I'm so glad you discovered that because this idea of having to find one author at a time or one prospect or whatever, you know, with one of my listeners are, are paying attention to this. It's really a key idea that's coming out here with Tyler. And that is who are the people who already work with your ideal clients and how can you form a relationship with them where you can deliver some value to them and get in front of their 
uh, clients, what could you offer that they don't currently offer? So it's not competitive, right? Tyler, it sounds like that's what you, you found a way to provide value that those other entities were not already providing. Exactly. Yeah. So I always, I don't even think in terms of competition, like at all, which is, I think, different than a lot of entrepreneurs and just people in in general, like a lot of, I don't want to say a lot, but people are competitive. Um, I, I don't view myself as competitive. That's not what, um, gives me like energy. Uh, what it is, is I think I'm a publisher, you're a publisher. Yes, we offer some of the same things, but I'm sure there are some things that you offer that I don't and I offer that you don't. And in a lot of cases, just with my case, we do uh, book marketing. That's what we're known for in the industry. And most publishers, in fact, I almost can't even name one that, that does marketing. Like they, they, and I'm not, I'm not saying that's like bad. It's just, it's just, that's not what they do. They, they do publishing. So we connect with all the publishers and the next, next natural step when somebody publishes a book is like, okay, well, how do I market it? (laughs) So we are that, that source. And then all the publishers refer to us for that. So, and then in some cases, even though we're a publisher, we're a service publisher, there's two other types, hybrid and traditional if someone comes to me and they want a hybrid or traditional, then I would refer them to one of my publishing partners to, to do that. So um, yeah, that's how it works. Well, I think it'd be interesting for you to explain what is the difference between service hybrid and traditional publishing? Okay. Yeah. So service basically is uh, we get paid up front. And then we deliver the service for publishing, meaning like we do the book cover, the formatting, distribution, um, ISBN, copyright, all all the minor details to go from rough draft to book in hand and book available in stores. And the author keeps all the royalties besides the uh, cut that the stores like Amazon and Barnes and Noble take. We don't take any royalty, but we are paid up front. Um, a hybrid is, well, actually I'll go to traditional then hybrid. So traditional is like the opposite. So basically you get like a literary agent and you pitch to publishers and then normally takes a while, uh, let's just say a year or something. Uh, maybe you get a book deal, a book deal, although advances nowadays are very, um, unlikely unless you're like celebrity type. Um, but you could get a small advance. Um, and then they take care of all those costs. So you don't pay anything up front. Um, but the flip side is they'll typically take 80 to 90% royalty and then you get 10, 20%. So you don't really get a lot of the um, back end um, profits. So it, it very little. And then the middle is like hybrid. Um, and hybrid is, uh, from my experience with hybrid publishers, they'll take like 50% royalty. Author gets 50%. Um, And it's just, I'd say hybrid maybe is a little more hand-holding throughout the author journey. It's not just like um, the book is published, you paid, and then that's kind of the end of that particular arrangement. So hybrid's just kind of in the middle of traditional and service. Mm -hmm. Thinking about book publishing, and you know and have worked with so many authors, you've talked to even more what are some of the, for, for those of my listeners that might be considering writing a book or have written a book, 
and even self-published it or had it published, what are some mistakes that you see authors make? Um, let's say in approaching, you know, the initial stages of book writing, but then also after the book has been published, what are some of the things that you see uh, that that you know that they don't? Yeah, for sure. So two main things that I'll, that I'll say, and that there's definitely more than two, but, um, and they both actually go um, with before the writing even starts uh, pretty much. Um, so one is with marketing. So marketing should actually come before you even start writing the book and most authors, and it makes sense why, because, you know, writing a book is a huge task. So most authors write the whole book and they're just about to publish and then they think about marketing, right? When you actually should have thought about the marketing before. And if you had, you probably would have wrote your or written your book a little differently because it's just kind of like that thing of like, what's your end goal here? And then reverse engineer it. So um, think of the marketing first, get that set. And um, if you do that, one thing that you could do is you could build a launch team Right. So like start a Facebook group and document the journey of writing your book, because a lot of people want to write books. So they would find that valuable to see the ups and downs of your journey. And then essentially what occurs, I've had people do this and they build communities, hundreds, some have built in thousands of people in a Facebook group that for six months, they documented the journey of writing the book. And then when the book launches, these all these people feel like they were a part of the book because they were with you the whole time or part of the time. Mm. And then when you launch it, you have all of them uh, buy it and leave a review. And that starts you off on a good trajectory for the book. Um, sorry, go ahead. No, that's oh, great. Okay. I was just going to say that's a brilliant strategy. Yeah. And I, I have to give Gary Vee a little credit for that one because that one of the things he says is documentation over creation. That was a big aha moment for me because I actually find creating content difficult. But I, with all the podcasts that I do, that in itself, so I mean like content in a way of like creative, like sitting down by myself and like formulating this video or this infographic, that to me is hard. But I can repurpose and I could just document like having a vlogger um, with me or something like my little brother, he does video and photo work. So sometimes uh, in a day, I'll just say, Hey, follow me and, and get some shots and stuff. And then I'll use that because it's more natural. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's how I create content. So either way, that was from him. And then as far as writing the book, where I think most people mess up is they try to do it. So like uh, in such a uniform way. So first thing is come up with the title. Second thing is write the intro and then write the first. And it has to be like so perfect throughout. And that is what prevents them from finishing or or even starting. Because I've had calls with people where they they haven't started writing their book and they are on like month three of still trying to figure out their title. They're like, I can't start until I get the title. (laughs) And like what I, one actually blog post I have somewhere, it's been a while. It was called uh, write your book backwards and not literally, but what I mean by that is what you should do is actually the title comes last because if you write your whole book, naturally what will occur is by the time you're done doing the hard work, the title sometimes will just naturally come to you. 
right? Because you've done all the hard meat, meaty work. Um, and then how I would write the book is like, you think of it as different sections. So write like blog posts separately, and then naturally the order will come together. And then you do conclusion, intro, title last. And that's how, and lastly, just to summarize that, I think a lot of people get stuck on the title and it's almost like a mechanism of avoiding the work. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, Yeah, it's a type of procrastination. Exactly, yeah. <clears throat> well, I want to take a different angle with books because I know that when, even though you dropped out of college, you have been a, a, a massive learner and books have been a key aspect of that. And in particular, I remember you mentioning being curious versus cautious. Mm-hmm. So talk about your what you've really learned by reading and studying books and how that plays into this being curious versus cautious. I think being curious, um, and I, I don't know the psychology behind all of it, but like I, I would assume everyone's at least a little curious, but maybe some there's like a spectrum, I guess. I would put myself on the like very curious side of things. Um, like I'm always looking into like everything because I'm always curious of like, what is the source? An example of that would be like, I'm a big fan of Alan Watts. He's like a spiritual person. And um, then what I did is I started to look like, who did Alan Watts learn from? And I realized one of the people was Yogananda. So then I got um, his books, The Autobiography of a Yogi, if I remember correctly. So then I started to learn from them. And then I looked in, you know, and I keep going deeper and deeper. So um, regardless, to go back to school, what I find a little disappointing, at least from my experience, was I actually didn't like reading when I was younger. Um, Like before, Four Hour Work Week was the first book that I read that I really liked. And that is what like led me to read, I don't know how many books now, at least hundreds, maybe over a thousand. Um, because the next book I read was Think and Grow Rich. Next thing I know, I'm spending hundreds of dollars I don't have on Amazon because I was a broke college kid. <laughs> um, and I have like 50 books in my room and I'm just like going crazy. Um, but in school, what I realized now is that it was because they were like forcing us to read books that like I didn't have interest in. Right. So it wasn't that I didn't like reading. It was that I wasn't curious about that topic. Mm. Um, And that's like a a big frame shift. So anybody listening who might be younger or maybe even older and you still think you don't like reading, it might just be the topic. Uh, In fact, it probably is that (laughs) because reading, if you like what you're reading is, well, then you like it. Um, But either way, then the podcast um, that was all started out of curiosity. Like I love um, what we're doing here. And, you know, I had you on my show um, as well. To me, that's the most fun thing that I can think of um, is to sit down with somebody like one-on-one and just go as deep as possible with them and understand like what makes them tick or like, what are they curious about? What do they know? And through every interaction that I do on the podcast, I am learning. Um, So I think it's huge. If you're curious um, and you are curious about everything in your life, you'll be curious about your business. And that curiosity will lead to you um, wanting to understand, well, how do I grow it? How can I optimize it? How can I be more productive? And you go down these rabbit holes 
and you become better and better at each thing uh, every day. So I think curiosity is key, like mm-hmm. the foundation. How has it helped you to get past being overly cautious, especially in your business? What Talk about the difference there, because I think sometimes yeah. we get, let me explain why I'm asking that. Sometimes we can get into this analysis mode. And uh, so the curiosity kind of gets shut off because we start evaluating and thinking, oh, we better not do this because this could happen. How do you kind of switch that from thinking in a cautious way to allowing the curiosity element to be the dominant one? It's a great question. So there's a bunch of different things going on in my head right now. So I'm going to try to formulate it because what's interesting is I, I'm a pretty big risk taker with a lot of things. The one thing I'm not is with like investing. I, I like like sure investments, even if it's lower returns. So things that I know a lot about that I'm cert, like almost certain of, I'd rather have like a 6% return than a potential 30% return where I could lose money. And I think it just has to do with like, I know how much work I've put into building this business and making the money that I'm like, I'd rather just get 6% because if I lose that money, I'm going to be upset. <laughs> you know, So mm-hmm. I am very cautious in that way. But how I've gotten better, if you will, at that is through putting curiosity over it. Um, I could give you an example. Uh, for example, 2016 is when I had a friend first tell me about like Bitcoin and Ethereum. I just that, That's the easiest example I can use. And at first I was like very cautious. I was like, this doesn't, to me, this doesn't make any sense. Like uh, this seems like a scam, whatever it is. Right. And then I slowly, I started to become curious. I did a bunch of research and to me, um, at least with Bitcoin and Ethereum, they seemed like a fairly sure bet. And it was because of my curiosity and learning at first glance seemed like a scam. But when I dove deeper, I was like, okay, I see all the angles. I see why these both were created. I get it. I'm not going to go all in, but what I'm going to do is every month, dollar cost average, I'm just going to put in some money every month. So since 2016 till now, I've put in some money each month into those two. I mess around with the little coins too, just for fun sometimes, but not a lot of money, nothing that if I lose, I would be worried about it. Right. And, and that's what it is, is it's like, if your, your curiosity is, it becomes like, you're able to learn enough about the thing that you're cautious about that the, that your knowledge overtakes the caution. Mm -hmm. And then you realize coming full circle that your caution um, radar was actually an over-exaggeration of the brain being more fearful than it should. And it's just because you haven't done your homework yet. Right. And it's not to say that I couldn't have done the homework and discovered, oh, actually they are scams. I'm out, move on to the next thing. It just so happened that I thought they were good. So, you know, I really like that example because it applies to so many aspects of our lives where we initially think, oh no, that won't work. Or, oh no, we haven't done that. Or, oh no, we have done that. It didn't work in the past. Instead of adopting that curious question, asking questions, what if? And I love the emphasis on learning 
because mm-hmm. I think too often we draw conclusions, we take that position I'm right because we've closed off the curiosity side. And so I think that was uh, just a wonderful example. And I think it's how you tend to approach your business too, isn't it? You are always curious about how you can take it to another level or how you can expand the services that you're um, offering your clients. Because you mentioned earlier about starting different businesses based on, you know, relationships that you have formed. And so I'm just curious now, curious now to know uh, what kind of criteria do you use if you can describe it when evaluating the potential of a relationship, because you are such a relationship builder and you have to kind of use discretion. I know I struggle with this, you know, I want to serve everybody, be, you know, good friends with everyone, but you have to be strategic in who you're really going to invest more time in the relationship to see potential. So what, what are some of the criteria you use to decide this has greater potential. And I want to put more time and effort into that. Um, okay. So I think there's two, two things here. So from a business standpoint, um, one thing that I noticed, this is kind of a cool finding is through all of the thousands, 10,000 plus with my sales team of the partnership calls that we've done. We, I don't know the exact number now. I'd have to look in my CRM, but it's around a hundred there is a hundred people because I actually went through all of them and checked not only what the revenue was that they um, refer to me, but what I also refer to them. And I discovered that out of all of those, there was a hundred people that basically made up like 70, 80% of our revenue. Right. And then I was like, okay, what is it that these hundred people do and how could I connect with them at a deeper level? Cause obviously their clients like us, my clients like them, there is a good connection here. So uh, in one scenario, there is a tool out there that helps authors get book reviews. I own a small percentage of that company because um, that company is referred to me and I refer to them. And then I help them market that tool and they gave me a small percentage of the company. So that's just one example. And then PR companies, I have partnerships with them and we've created other side businesses so that's just the business standpoint. Now, from like a like friendship or person, people like me and you, I can totally relate to this because it's almost like, um, and I'm trying to word that at the end of the day, when you connect with as many people as we do, you do have to make decisions. And this might sound like it's mean or something, but like at the end of the day, you can't be everyone's best friend. You don't have time. And it, I wish I did, right? Like I would love to be everyone's best friend if time was limitless and like we could just, but it's just not the case. So you have to really evaluate like who can you add the most value to and who can add the most value to you. And it's not just value. I don't mean in a monetary way. I mean, in like an enjoyment way too. Um, and when you connect with as many people as we have, you start to just discover who those people are and you move toward them, I think. And that's how I've done it. So it's not that I'm like, I don't have time. You're not my top 10 list. You know, it's not like that, but it's just like, I'm, I reach out to the people in my life that I care about the most. And if the other that are not in that inner circle reach out to me, I'm still there from them. 
for them, but I might, you know, text them the next day, like not an immediate response. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how I do it. And, and you have to be, because if not, you would just, you drown f- figuratively, you know? So. Mm-hmm. No, I think that what you described there, again, is very practical. When we look at our limited time, where are we smartest to invest time in terms of it being mutually beneficial? Because I think one of the things we are probably both sensitive about, and many of my listeners may be too, are people who are interested in taking, but not giving. And so you kind of had have your radar up for that, because I think it's important to, you know, have others that are like-minded, that really share your values and want to give back to you and not just ask you for favors. So I think that's one way, Tyler, that you stand out because you are always seeking ways to provide value, be of service to someone else. So as we wrap up, I think that's a good place to stop and ask you, uh, how can people learn more about Authors Unite, connect with you, and you know, learn more about all the different things that you do? Yeah, for sure. And thanks again for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Um, so really main way for Authors Unite is the website. It's authorsunite.com. And no matter where you're at, um, meaning if you haven't written a word and you're looking for a ghostwriter, we could help you there. Or if your book's been out for 10 years and you know you haven't had the success that you would like, we can do an evaluation and see if we can help you with the marketing uh, from there. So really from start to finish, um, full done for you is, is what we offer. Um, and then as far as me personally, Instagram is probably the best. It's Tyler B. Wagner. So there's a B in there. Tyler Wagner's taken famous baseball player. And um, yeah, that's how you connect with us. Great. Tyler, thank you so much for being such a positive force in the world and all the people you serve, including authors and all the folks that you've touched in your time here and in your last 10 years of business and even beyond. Thank you for being in my circle and for being with me today. Thanks for tuning into my podcast. Now head over to growstrongleaders.com and check out our two books, Connect With Your Team and Peer Coaching Made Simple. While you're there, download the free facilitator guide to find out how to implement our unique peer coaching system. Until next time, I'm Meredith Bell.